0: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be now and always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. In Ezekiel's vision in chapter 10, the judgment of God on his people comes to a climax in the departure of His glory, of His presence from the temple. We skipped over most of chapter 9. Thank goodness for that. The vision of slaughter in chapter 9, the bodies piling up in the courts of the temple, and the burning coals of judgment is hard. And yet the vision of the departure of the glory of God is if anything harder because it signals the end of hope to all those who are left in Jerusalem. Last week, Glenn spoke of the opening scene to this vision, which comes in chapter 8. Ezekiel is sitting in his house in Babylon, and he's got the elders of Judah gathered around him. They have come for a prophetic word from the Lord. But not this kind of word. They wanted... A word that God was going to come and rescue them and return them to Jerusalem. A word of hope in the midst of their experience of exile, not this word of judgment. So Ezekiel is caught up in this vision just as he was in chapter 1. But now, a year or so later, everything has become much clearer. The elements that were shrouded in that first vision come into focus. Instead of sitting on the banks of the river Kibar, Ezekiel is carried by the Spirit of the Lord into the temple in Jerusalem. Ezekiel sees that the living creatures from his first vision are indeed the cherubim, figures familiar from the temple, although they're not quite the same as the carved figures in the temple, which of course makes sense because these are not representative figures shaped by human hands. They are the living cherubim, the ones who attend to God in his presence. So in this vision, the cherubim, the sapphire throne, the clouds, the brightness, the splendor, all cry out the glory of God. And the sound of the cherubim's wings fills the temple, even to the outer court, like the thunder of God's voice when God speaks. An interesting thing here, because in the psalm it speaks of God's voice breaking the cedars of Lebanon. And of course, the temple is largely built out of the cedars of Lebanon. You can almost feel the foundations of the temple shudder. Ezekiel is being assaulted on every front with the glory of God, a thundering sound, shining light, burning heat. But we aren't told how Ezekiel responds, because the focus is on God. This is the transcendent God, the holy, awesome, terrible God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And here Ezekiel's vision more closely aligns with that of Isaiah. The vision of God, the glory of God in the temple. Although the burning coals here are scattered in judgment rather than purifying the prophet so that the prophet may speak. As Glenn described last week, God is judging the people for their abominations. Chapter 8, verse 6, Then God said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing. The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me from my sanctuary. These abominations include syncretism and idolatry. But at the heart of the matter, God is judging the people because they are living as though God is not present, as though God has no idea what's going on. Chapter 8 and verse 12 Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his own room of images? For they say, the Lord does not see. The Lord has forsaken this land. This is repeated again in chapter 9 and verse 9 in the midst of God's judgment. For they say, the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. They have judged the Lord and found God wanting. And that is all the justification that they need for doing exactly what they want to do instead of obeying God. And here, of course, is the stark paradox. The cherubim who come to escort the glory of God, the glory of the Lord from the temple, confirm that God has been present there all along. This theophany is not the sudden appearance of a God who has long been absent, one who dwells in an altogether separate space. No, God has been present in the temple the whole time, just as he had promised. God, through his glory, his kabod, has been present in the temple, while the elders or leaders of the people are sitting in the dark, oblivious to the presence of the God, each in their room full of images Or idols, and all the while saying to themselves, The Lord doesn't see, the Lord left here a long time ago. The narrator allows us to look in on this scene, along with Ezekiel, and ask, How can these elders not be aware? How can they ignore the holy presence of God? And this is judgment that the light has come into the world, and the people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Jerome, in his interpretation of this passage, sees it as marking the shift from Israel to the church. The Lord judges the people of Israel, and his departure from the temple marks the end of God's commitment to Israel and a new beginning with the church. This supersessionism to our shame has a long and appalling history in the church. We have been to one extent or another dealing with the fallout of this kind of interpretation ever since. What is perhaps most sobering for us today is how quickly we are able to see this as God's judgment of Israel and not God's judgment on humanity. Thank God, we say, that we are not like that. What what should, of course, strike us, and Glenn again pointed to this last week, is that Ezekiel's vision seems eerily prescient for our time. The refrain that seems to play continually in the background of our lives is the Lord has forsaken us, the Lord does not see In his book, The Secular Age, Charles Taylor speaks of the marks of this age, and central to the secular understanding, the way that people inhabit the world is that they live as though God is not here or as there is no God at all. They have constructed and live with an understanding of the world that makes no provision for any authority outside the self. They may have gods or idols. Indeed, there are many, many to choose from. But these idols are part and parcel of our world, and they are strangely amenable to what people already value or hold dear. What is particularly sobering for the church is that, of course, this is not true just of the world out there. It is true to one degree or another of us all. In the church, this takes the form of practical atheism. Unlike atheists, who declare there is no God, we in the church, like the elders in Jerusalem, too often claim to worship God, while living day to day as though there is no God or as though God were too distant from this world to make any practical difference. We seem to either demythologize Jesus, believing that we're just being honest and we have to figure things out for ourselves, or we spiritualize Jesus, while emphasizing our commitment to faithfulness, but the Jesus we are faithful to is a little too tame, a little too manageable, and a little too private. Clinging fiercely to what we see as honesty and faithfulness, or honesty or faithfulness, we fail to recognize that we too are sitting in the dark with our own images and idols. The second reason why this is particularly difficult for us today when we see this through a supersessionist lens is that it robs us. It robs us of true hope in a faithful God. Throughout Ezekiel, we have repeated reminders that God, the holy transcendent other, does not dwell in an altogether separate space. This God in a multitude of different ways, makes himself present and active in the world, at will. This is evident in Ezekiel's first vision, where God's glory appears to him while he is on the banks of the Kibar River. And it continues when God comes to Ezekiel in Babylon. God is present even in exile. God's glory, God's presence in the world, is not limited to the temple. The declaration of a God who consistently appears and consistently acts culminates in Ezekiel 43, where the glory of the Lord returns to the eschatological temple through the same east gate from which God departed. The eschatological temple, which is, of course, the person of Jesus Christ. And this finally exposes the lie to God is not here. God does not see. So the issue is never whether God is present in our space and time or whether God will show up. It is the other way around. Our space and time only exists because of God's faithful and consistent sustaining of it. All of which points us to to the cross, that place where the depths and riches of God's faithfulness Are fully unveiled. You see, if we believe that God gave up on the people of Israel because of their unfaithfulness, then we've missed the heart of the gospel, which is that even in the face of the most consistent human rebellion against God, God continues to work for our redemption. The cross, understood apart from God's unyielding faithfulness to Israel, is emptied of much of its meaning. And John's gospel ties this together when John points to Christ lifted up as a revelation of the glory of God. The hour has come. Glorify your Son that he may glorify you. May we in the church today allow God to open our eyes that we may see and live to his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.